You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. worship team for leading us so well. Nice to have a keyboard that actually works, right, Lindsay? It's kind of nice. Yeah, it was, uh, some of you may not have realized there were some weeks recently where the old keyboard was, uh, went on strike a couple times. So uh, I said that would have been my cue to just stand over there and just like pretend like I was just like getting on it right then. That would have been, uh, but uh, we're able to thankfully uh, start using some new equipment that we've uh, purchased for the new facility, which, uh, by the way, we're weeks away, uh, Lord willing. Uh, I get, yeah, praise the Lord. Um, when I was a kid growing up, I used to hate the phrase, wait and see. Like, do you hate that? Like, my parents would say that to me. Like, I would want to know, when are we going to go to sick? Wait and see. Wait and see. Wait and see. And I, I say, well, what is that? Wait and see means wait and see. And so people are asking me, uh, you know, regularly, do we have a date? from moving over to our new facility, and I just want to go, wait and see. <laughs> That's as good as I can do, I promise. Uh, if I could give you any more detail than that, I would. Uh, and so, But I will tell you that we are in the really the final stages of, of the building process and being able to get moved over there, and man, are we looking forward to that. Uh, just know we will have some challenges. Uh, it will be uh, readily apparent uh, when we move in that we need to build, which seems kind of weird, I know, uh, it's like, uh, but once we get there, it's not going to be like, well, we've arrived, okay, um, we still have much work to do, and so thank you for your faithfulness in giving, uh, and I know many of you have given faithfully for years uh, toward the future of First Baptist Church Van Alstine, and continue to do that, so thank you so much uh, for all that you have done and continue to do in the days to come. So we're talking now about final stages for uh, playground and all of the stuff that's involved in getting us moved over um, to the other side of Highway 75. So look forward to that. I'm so grateful for, I know many of them stepped out because they were in the early service, but we've actually got a team of people uh, under the direction of Walton Meyer Hammonds who lead our Operation Christmas Child uh, efforts. Uh, and so you might think, well, doesn't this seem a little early? But what you have to remember is it takes time to fill those boxes, process those boxes, ship those boxes to the other side of the world. And so this is really the time that that all starts right now. And so it is important, if you've never filled a box particularly, that you stop at the table on your way out. Uh, you will be able to pick up a box there and any information that you need for what can and cannot be put in one of those boxes. There are some things that you cannot include, and so would hate for you to waste your money and have those items removed at the distribution center uh, before they head out of country. And so uh, also, I think there is still a way for you to track your box. Uh, that's kind of a cool thing. If you've got younger kids especially, you can actually uh, track your box and know where it goes. Uh, to like El Salvador, uh, and uh, you'll uh, s- uh, hear stories like uh, the one you heard earlier from Moises, and so uh, so grateful for that. Also, uh, if you've not already purchased some baked items from our precious little GAs over there across the street, uh, then I would encourage you to do that. I know they're hard to resist, uh, not just the baked items, but those cute little faces over there just looking at you like, please buy our stuff, right? And uh, some of you have already done that. Uh, the good thing for you is if the sermon goes a little long, you'll have some snacks to uh, rely upon here in the service, right? But if I catch you, you have to share them with me, okay? That's the, 
That's the deal. We're in John chapter 8 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there with me if you would. John chapter 8. Next month, we celebrate the 506th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, that may or may not excite you, uh, of course, depending upon uh, how much you appreciate church history or how well you understand the changes that uh, came as a result of the Reformation. Uh, And I think today there is a growing understanding that the principles of the Reformation have brought tremendous blessings uh, and benefits to all kinds of people, even non-Christians. I mean, you think about this. Uh, Individuals who desire to live according to their conscience and not according to the dictates of a state-enforced religious empire. Uh, And that is a result of the Protestant Reformation. So one of the mottos of the Reformation uh, was a Latin phrase, post tenebrae lux, which means after the darkness, light. So for hundreds of years, uh, people couldn't own and read a Bible in their own language. And so they couldn't worship God in their own language. They had to do what the church told them to do, whether they understood it or not. And so thankfully, after this time of darkness, the light of God's word uh, began to shine as the scriptures were translated into German and French and English and the other languages of the people. And so as the scriptures were opened to the people uh, so that they could understand, uh, the people began to see Jesus. Isn't that amazing, right? Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the word come, become flesh uh, became apparent to them. It came to light uh, as they came to understand the written word uh, and they understood Jesus as the light of the world. And so one of the books that quickly became a favorite among God's people uh, is the Gospel of John. Uh, and one of the, uh, the most beloved chapters uh, is right here in John chapter 8 uh, where we see Jesus make this bold statement. I am the light of the world. And so that's where we are this morning, John chapter 8. We pick it up in verse number 12. And so if you have a copy of God's word there, I hope that you'll follow along. If you don't, it should be up on the screen for you uh, this morning. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one, yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Remember, we've seen that phrase before, his hour had not yet come. That tells us that that his life and ministry are moving towards something. An amazing climax, a completion of his mission, right? But his hour had not yet come. So he said to them, according to verse 21 again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declared to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he'd been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, very quickly, I want us to pick it up there in verse number 12, and you'll notice, first of all, that Jesus is the light of the world. As we pick it up in verse 12, it seems to be a direct continuation of the teaching that Jesus began on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles when he stood in the temple and shouted, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And I would just quickly say parenthetically, this is one of the reasons that many scholars believe that uh, the last part of the last verse there of chapter 7 down to verse number 11 of chapter 8 doesn't really fit here in John's, in this particular spot in John's gospel. uh, Because it it, kind of, it inserts itself in kind of an odd spot there, if that makes sense, okay? So Jesus' call for the thirsty to come and drink was probably issued right at the end of the last water-pouring ceremony. Remember we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, probably in the court of the Jewish men, uh, which surrounded the altar of burnt offerings in front of the threshold of the temple itself. Well, in today's passage, we're told, according to verse number 20, that Jesus is in the treasury of the temple. This area is in the court of the Jewish women. So that women, as well as men, could bring their offerings. Uh, and if you think back to the, the scene where Jesus and the disciples uh, see the widow put in her mite, right, her last coins. And so that would be this area. And so the court of women was incredibly significant as it relates to the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles because of what's known as the illumination of the temple. Uh, it involved the uh, ritual lighting of four golden oil-filled lamps in the court of women. These lamps were huge menorahs. Think candelabras, right? They're like some 75 feet high. Uh, And so they were lit in the temple at night to remind the people of the pillar of fire that guided Israel in their wilderness journey. It was said uh, that they, they, the, the illumination of these was so magnificent that it would light up even the courtyards of, of everyone in Jerusalem. Uh, is, is what it w- was said. And so all night long, these lights shone their brilliance, illuminating, as it were, the entire city. And so it was the, in the court of women, quite possibly, as these lamps were, were being lit, or perhaps even being extinguished the following day, that Jesus spoke these words. Uh, so sometimes we take these phrases and things that we know. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. But you, if you don't think about it or understand the, the cultural context of the moment in which he said those words, you can sometimes lose the meaning and the significance of what he's saying. And so it's as if there's this, like, this object lesson for these people. And he goes, well, check this out. I am the light of the world. <laughs> I'm the light of the world. You think these things are brilliant. I am the light of the world. Uh, and so whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. And so what Jesus is saying here is Jesus himself is the light. It's one of the most powerful 
and clear self-declarations of Jesus. Uh, It is what we know as one of the I am statements of Jesus. This is the second uh, I am proclamation of Jesus here in John's gospel. The first being I am the bread of life uh, from John chapter 6. And so only God uh, can rightly be called the light of the world in this absolute sense. And Psalm 27, David declares, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Now, what would still be ringing in the ears of these worshipers in the temple would be the words of Psalm 118. Remember, we mentioned a couple of weeks ago that they would sing these Hallel Psalms. Uh, This would be the last of the Hallel Psalms, which had been sung every day during the Feast of Tabernacles, which includes these words, The Lord is God, and He has made His light to shine upon us. Psalm 118, verse 27. So as these words have been sung for the last time until Passover, the sun's setting, the lamps being lit, or perhaps uh, the next morning as the lamps are being extinguished, put out for the last time, Jesus said, in that context, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Light was a powerful symbol for the Jewish people. It represented the truth and the goodness of God, his righteousness, his holiness. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he means that he is the truth of God, personified, the manifestation of God's holiness and God's righteousness. And this imagery isn't lost on us somehow. Uh, we, we, we use some of the same metaphors. If someone is, is like not in the know, they lack information, what do we sometimes say of them? Well, he's just in the dark, right? Or, or if we say that maybe you gain some new information, you say, well, well that, that sheds some new light on the subject, right? Or I've been enlightened on the subject. We have a period of history known as the Enlightenment, which was a, a time of advanced knowledge and understanding. So the idea would be that individuals were enlightened by this new knowledge. And so it's not uncommon for us to say that. It's also not uncommon for us to, to connect the dots between darkness and evil. I mean, what does Scripture say? Men love darkness. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And so many times, evil deeds are done under the cover of darkness. Uh, And so that's why it's not uncommon if you pay attention to courtroom dramas and those kind of things. They will say, we're going to bring some things to light about this case, right? Or about the defendant or or whatever uh, the case may be. And so in much the same way, it was a very powerful symbol to uh, these Jewish people. Now, we, we live in a world of darkness. If you are not aware of that, then you're not paying attention. Okay, we, we live in a world of darkness, abject darkness, and our hearts are plagued by darkness from birth, Scripture tells us. We were conceived in sin. It's a part of our fallen nature, and so we lie, and we live in a world of lies. We sin, and we live in a world of sin. We suppress the truth about God. We choose to worship and serve created things rather than our creator, and we live in an Unholy world full of idolatry, a very broken, sinful world. And so Jesus steps into the darkness of this world as the light of the world, shining with the purity of absolute truth and perfect righteousness and radiant holiness. But Jesus is proclaiming more than just the truth that he is God. He is also saying that he is fulfilling the calling of Israel. 
which Israel failed to fulfill. Israel was God's chosen instrument to shine the light of his truth and goodness into a world of darkness. But they had chosen to hide the light under a basket. Though God had given them a city on a hill, actually on seven hills, they had shut it off from one of its main purposes. Understand this, 700 years before Jesus' incarnation, God said this about the coming Messiah through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 49. And it comes in the form of a song. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So Jesus comes as the light of the world as the incarnation of God himself and the Messiah who is a light to the nations. But not only that, he gives the light of life. What does light do? Light dispels darkness, right? It dispels darkness. I don't know about you, but if you really stop and think about it, you probably have more lights in your home than than you would even imagine. I mean, you probably have two or three flashlights in a utility drawer somewhere or up in a closet or, or whatever. Maybe, you know, you, those are the ones that you run to whenever the power goes out or whatever. Um, you, you know, some homes have magnificent, you know, chandelier-type light fixtures and those kinds of things. But most of us would acknowledge one of the lights that's most important for us is the light that keeps us from stubbing our toe in the middle of the night when we get up to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it's that little nightlight in the bathroom, Right? Light dispels darkness. And so Jesus gives the light of life. But Jesus doesn't just declare that he is the light of the world. He invites us to the light. Just as his proclamation that he is the bread of life was accompanied by a promise of satisfaction for the soul's hunger. So here Jesus declares that he is the light of the world and invites us to step out of darkness and into his light. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In his commentary, William Hendrickson says this about this text. He says, Jesus is the light of the world. To the ignorant, he proclaims wisdom. To the impure, holiness. To those in sadness, he declares gladness. Moreover, to those who were drawn by sovereign grace to follow the light, he not only proclaims, but actually imparts these blessings. The only way to escape the darkness of our ignorance, our sin, and our sadness is to follow Jesus. Not only will he lead us in the light, but he will give us the light of life. He says this teaching of Jesus connects back to the opening of John's gospel. Remember those words where John tells us, in him was life, and what? The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus has life in and of himself. And his life is that which gives light to men. This is how he can give us the light of life. He gives us himself as our eternal life. In him we have the light of life. 
So you said, well, who are those who are willing to follow Jesus? Well, just as those who know they are hungry will come to the bread of life, and those who are thirsty will come to the fountain of living water, so those who know they are walking in darkness will come to the light of the world. Reminds me of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what does it look like to follow Jesus, to walk in the light of life? John wrote later in his first letter, we call it 1 John, describing what it means to walk in the light of life. So if you're here this morning and maybe you're already wondering, am I walking in the light of life? This is what he says in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. I wonder, are you walking in the light? There's a second thing I want you to notice from our text today, and that's this. Jesus is the true witness. He's the true witness. Now, you're probably not shocked when you look at the context of of where we are here in John's gospel to hear that the Pharisees don't respond with faith and come to the light of the world. They're a pretty skeptical bunch, right? I mean, it seems like every time Jesus turns around, he's being confronted by these religious leaders and their ideologies and their misunderstanding and uh, and these kinds of things. So the Pharisees thought of themselves as the keeper of God's light. Because they were the experts in the law, and in their mind, the law gives light. And so the Pharisees responded by skeptically questioning Jesus. The Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. The Pharisees ignore any evidence or corroboration of Jesus' testimony, and they dismiss him out of hand because he is bearing witness about himself. Now, this seems a little ridiculous on the surface of it. Because first of all, the standard that they are appealing to, uh, it was that which is given in the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 17 and 19, to establish a charge against an accused person. They are the ones who need two to three witnesses to agree in any charge that they wanted to make against Jesus. Besides, who would know better than Jesus who Jesus really is? So if you want to know who I am, then... Hopefully, you would ask me and let me bear witness about myself. You want to know something about me, what I like, what I dislike, what I'm passionate about, what I'm not? Then let's have a conversation, right? Let me bear witness about myself in those things. So Jesus answered them. He said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. Now, he said something very similar before, right? Remember that? They were like, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute. You can't possibly be the Messiah because we know that the Messiah is not to be the, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. We know where you come from. And all along, he's just like, guys, 
you look like you got it all together, but you continually miss the point. You continually miss the point. So he goes on to say, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. Check this out. He says, I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So Jesus defends the truth and the accuracy of his own testimony and then condemns the Pharisees for their fleshly judging of him and of others. And before you start looking down your nose too much at the Pharisees, let's stop and think for just tap the brakes and let's ask ourselves how many times we play the part of the Pharisee. Because like the Pharisees, we tend to judge outwardly, right? So we, we can all walk in here every week, and I can fool you, and you can fool me, and we can fool one another, but there's not one of us in here who can fool God. You can come in here, and you can look like you've got it together, that you're walking with Jesus, and man, your, your Christian experience is just amazing when in reality it's something completely different. And the same can be said of me. Okay, That's why scripture says, let your love, in the old King James it says, let your love be without dissimulation. That means play acting. It's hypocrisy. It says, abhor what is evil while you cling to what is good. And so much like the Pharisees, we tend to do the same thing many times. We have a limited ability to truly judge. Now, I understand that we can look at fruit and all of those things that we're instructed to do in Scripture, but Jesus is making this very important point here. To judge according to the flesh is to judge by appearances and by human standards like class and social standing and wealth and family background. And None of these biased, selfish, prideful standards of judging have prepared the Pharisees to recognize Jesus who came from heaven in humility and lived a lowly, ordinary life. So Jesus then appeals to the corroboration of the Father, who testifies about the truth of who Jesus is through the works Jesus does and who, with Jesus, judges the heart of the Pharisees with true judgment. So how does God the Father testify along with Jesus? In two ways, through the Word of God and through the works of God. So the scriptures clearly testify as to who Jesus is and the works that Jesus does. We've seen them up to this point in John's gospel. That he does by the power of God confirm the testimony of scripture. So the Pharisees, they take this mention of Jesus' father as an opening to launch a new line of attack and insinuation. One that's repeated throughout this chapter. They are beginning to cast doubt on Jesus' paternity, questioning who his father really is. It's almost like, oh, speaking of your father, who, who really is your father? This father that you speak of. Let, let's, let's talk about this for a moment. Now, no doubt, rumors about the suspicious nature of Jesus' birth the timing of Mary's pregnancy, Mary and Joseph's relationship, their marriage, would have been the kind of rumor that had legs in ancient Israel. If there was a Jerry Springer in that day, it would have been featured on Jerry Springer, right? I mean, think about it for just a moment. Especially when the son born of that questionable pregnancy later arises as a Messiah figure. Scandalous, right? I mean, there's got to be something up with this. 
So they said to him, therefore, who is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So Jesus does not take the bait of their insinuation. Instead, he turns the tables back on them. They don't know who his father is. That's not because he is an illegitimate child, but because they are illegitimate religious leaders. They don't know who Jesus is, and they also don't know who his father is. What Jesus says here is so important. Please don't miss this. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You see, we can't come to know God apart from Jesus. So for someone to say, I'm into God, but I'm not so much into Jesus, is a ridiculous statement. It's a ridiculous statement. If you reject Jesus, it's because you don't know God. No one who truly knows God rejects his son, his greatest gift, the only way that we have access to the Father. This has incredible relevance to the questions of our day of whether Christians worship the same God as all the other world religions. I can assure you that we don't because no one can worship and know the Father unless he knows the Son. That's why I tell you fairly often, if you're in a conversation with someone and you're trying to discern whether you're on the same page as it relates to the gospel, one of the most important things you can ask them is, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the deity of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he was truly God in the flesh? Or do you just believe he was a great teacher, a great moral leader? What do you believe about Jesus? There are religions around the world who believe that Jesus was nothing more than a prophet. So this is critically important, what Jesus is saying here. No one can worship and know the Father unless he knows the Son. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So that brings us to point number three this morning from verses 21 through 27. Jesus is the only salvation from sin. So if we do not know God, then we remain in the sin of our unbelief and our sins remain unforgiven. This is what Jesus goes on to say really clearly. He begins by speaking again of his soon coming departure to go back to the Father, which the Jewish leaders completely misunderstand again. They say, he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says where I am going, you cannot come. So Jesus adds something new here from what he had said before about his departure. You will seek me, and you will die in your sin. I want you to let the heaviness of that statement fall on you this morning. And in a moment of vulnerability, let me just tell you, there have been far too many times in my Christian journey where I've been prompted by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with someone, and I failed to do it. which meant that somehow, some way, I had to push to the back of my mind in a way somehow ignoring the fact that if this person dies without faith in Jesus Christ, they die in their sin. They die in their sin. Now, there's a double meaning to Jesus' words here. After the resurrection, remember, the Jewish religious leaders looked for Jesus' body but could never find it. 
And yet they refused to believe that he had risen from the dead. And so they died in their sin of unbelief. But also, since Jesus' departure, the Jewish people have continued to look for the Messiah, but they've never found him because they've missed him. And they've continued to die in their unbelief. And of course, they didn't understand any of this, but they instead speculated that Jesus might kill himself. In fact, their speculation wasn't all that far off the mark. Because while Jesus certainly did not kill himself, he did freely and willingly surrender himself into their hands and lay down his life for the salvation of the sheep. Their thinking about Jesus continues to be so misguided because it continues to be driven by this fleshly attitude. So Jesus goes on to say, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he who I am he you will die in your sins. The only way for these Jewish religious leaders to be safe from their sins is to believe in Jesus Christ. Their temple worship, their religious regulations, their legalistic morality, their superior education, even their memorization of scripture, their social standing in the eyes of the people, none of this would save them from their sins. And again, let's tap the brakes for a moment before we look down our noses at the Pharisees. Because I suspect that there are people in churches just like ours all over the world today who in much the same way as the Pharisees are thinking the fact that their name is in the database of a church as the member of that church, or they've walked down an aisle at some point and they shook a preacher's hand, or they, whatever it is, I've served on a committee, I've done this, I've done that, my dad was a deacon for 25 years. They're appealing to all these things that make up their religious resume. But unless you've ever turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, you will die in your sin. You'll die in your sin. And Jesus' words to the Jewish leadership are still his words to you and me today. You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus' words here are nothing less than a full and clear assertion that he is the great I am. He will make this claim twice in this passage. Unless you believe that I am, I am he, you will die in your sins. Later, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, we've seen that language before, right? Scripture talks about and Jesus, when he is lifted up, will draw him into himself. Scripture says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's a reference to the cross. It's a reference to the cross. So when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. So Jesus' words here draw from two different places in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3, if you're familiar with with the calling of Moses from the burning bush, he tells him, I am who I am. In Isaiah chapters 41 and 43, where God repeatedly calls to his people and says, I am he. Like Isaiah 41.4, who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 43.10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. My servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am 
he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. So as you can imagine, the Jewish leaders here are stunned by these words of Jesus. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father, it says. They didn't understand. They couldn't see. They were trapped in unbelief, blinded by sin, cut off from the light of eternal life. They were quite literally groping in the darkness of their self-righteousness. Much like a lot of people today who play the part. You look religious. You seem like a really great person. But ultimately, you're walking in darkness. I want you to notice as we wrap up the text today, Jesus fulfills the Father's will. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. What does Scripture tell us about the mission and the purpose of Jesus coming? He came to seek and to save the lost. To seek and to save. To bring us from death to life, from darkness to light. Despite the unbelief and lack of understanding from the Jewish people and their leaders, Jesus was, was committed to fulfilling the mission for which he had been sent by his Father. And in fulfilling the will of the Father, Jesus would be lifted high up on a cross. And there he would demonstrate who he is, and many would come to see the truth. Even today, when people come to know God through Jesus Christ, they come through the cross. They come through the cross. It was on the cross that Jesus pleased the Father by doing the Father's will. It was the work of reconciliation. It's the only way that sinful human beings like you and me can be reconciled to a holy God. It's not through any form of modern-day Phariseeism. No. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. As Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile To himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then we're told here by John. Finally, after teaching in the temple court for days, when Jesus speaks of the cross, many believed in him. And we don't know how deep and true their faith is. John speaks well, warmly of it here. It seems to be the true faith that comes in response to the word and not just some response to miracles, which seems to produce a more selfish, superficial, fleeting kind of faith. True faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, as Romans 10 says. So again, the question that rings out today from this text is, do you have the light of life? Do you have the light of life? Have you heard the word of Christ? Have you believed? Or are you still in your sins?
Because you're either walking in darkness today or you're walking in the light. Following Jesus, the light of the world who gives you the light of life. If we could all for just a moment bow our heads together this morning. As we reflect on the passage that we've looked at today, I'd like for you in these final few moments that we're together to simply ask yourself, am I walking in the light? Or am I still walking in the darkness of my sin? If there's never been a time that you turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, then you are walking in the darkness of your sin. You say, Pastor, but I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to be a better person. I'm trying to do better. I'm trying to do more good things than bad things. And I'm, I'm hoping in the end that, that, that the scales will tip in my favor. Then you, then you are walking in the darkness of self-improvement and self-righteousness which means you are not walking in the light of Christ's righteousness in you. So if you're here today and you're uncertain about your relationship with God, maybe you're searching, seeking, I would love to take you aside, show you from the word of God. We have others who would be thrilled to do that as well. How you can know you're no longer walking in darkness, but you're walking in the light of life through faith in Jesus Christ. you're here today and your testimony is one of faith in Christ and you say, Pastor, I'm so grateful, I'm so grateful that I'm walking in the light. Can you truly say that you're walking in sweet fellowship with the Lord Jesus? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today and we thank you that you've made it possible for us to walk in the light to allow your light, your love to shine through us to others. Lord, I pray that you would lead and guide and direct us, that you would by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word draw to yourself anyone today who's never trusted you as Savior and Lord. I pray that they be drawn to you today as we surrender our all to you. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.